Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Satnam Rana talks to Carol Pemberton, founder of Black Voices, the UK's foremost female a cappella quintet. Satnam asks about Carol's life growing up as one of ten children to parents of the Windrush generation, to performing on every continent before royalty, presidents and with many of her idols. Good evening. So, Carol Pemberton, MBE, ladies and gentlemen, founder of the UK's most foremost female a cappella quintet, Black Voices. I mean, what has Carol not done is the question. She's performed worldwide in countries that many of us only dream of going to, on stages that are world-renowned and in front of some of the greats of our lifetime, Nelson Mandela, one of the popes. I think it was Pope John II, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, Princess Diana. I mean, that's just a few. Amazing. (laughs) But the thing about you, Carol and we have met in the past. Um, The thing about you that I really, really love is that you have remained rooted to our city, our glorious Birmingham. How important has that been for you? Uh, Really, really important for me. Um, I was born in Sorrento Maternity Hospital in Moseley. It's not there anymore. And I was looking back at my life the other morning whilst lying in bed and wondering what have we taken on with this cultural festival here and thinking that my life has revolved in Birmingham around the north of the city and in terms of my family life, the south of the city and within a two mile radius. And I was just like, wow, for somebody that's travelled all over the world, it's not very broad in terms of all encompassing for Birmingham. So my school life, half a mile from where I live now. (laughs) Uh, So I went to King's Heath Junior School. Then I went to Swanshurst Girls School. In those days, Swanshurst School was a bilateral and a grammar school. That's how long ago it was. Latin was still on the curriculum in those days. So yeah, uh, my whole life has been in Birmingham. I still remember the bull ring when the bull was in the bull ring. Uh, and the rotunda was black and white. Um, and yeah, I love this city. I've always felt that there's a vibrance about Birmingham that is nowhere else. And whether it was the smells being dragged around uh, the food market on a Saturday morning that we hated with that horrible trolley <laughs> bashing your foot. Um, yeah, I love all those elements of Birmingham and they stay with me. Yeah, no matter where I go in the world. Well, even if you try to leave the city, I think there's a whole load of us that would drag you right back. <laughs> um, so tell us a bit about family then, where you grew up in Moseley. What was family life like? I was born in Sorrento in Moseley, but we grew up in Kings Heath. Uh, so we lived on Silver Street, where the Lidl is now. There used to be some houses there many years ago. I'm one of ten children. Uh, so I have, well, I have five brothers now, but there were six. And I have three sisters. I'm a 60s baby. I was born in 1960. I know I look good, but uh, um, yeah, I was born in 1960. And uh, I'm one of those uh, families where I think I had an older brother for some time 
And then I remember one day that six people descended on our little house in Silver Street from the Caribbean. So my mum and dad had worked hard enough to bring the rest of the family across. And uh, those were really fun, fun times, I think, in our family. My mum said within a week they'd mashed up my pram, uh, just taking turns wheeling me all over the place. And uh, family is everything to me. Lots of us still live within one mile of each other in Kings Heath. I had two brothers that went into the forces and uh, I was able as a child to go and see them in different parts of the world over the summer holidays and stuff. So I think my love for travel grew out of that. Um, Very successful family. Uh, My older siblings, a lot of them are in education, were very high in education. Uh, The brother that died was a schools inspector for many years. He did his PhD and then he was one of the people responsible for getting Caribbean history within the curriculum and stuff. So I grew up in a family that were proud of its roots in the Caribbean, acknowledged its African roots. Um, That same brother traced all our family roots back to West Coast Africa in Ghana. We were able to go as a family and, you know, just do all of that history, historical stuff. And I think it's things like that that do keep you very grounded. Our mom always told us, don't put your hat higher than you can reach it. And that's something that stayed with me my whole life. Yeah, if we had problems, whether at school, with friendships, uh, with people outside of our home, our mom always told us to bring the problem home and discuss it at home. And as a family, we'd always think about the best way to deal with stuff. So we're very tight and that's important to me. You sound like you've got an awesome family. Yeah, Absolutely they are. beautiful. They are. So I'm gathering you were somewhere in the middle of, in, in the pecking order of the 10, were you? I'm second to last. Oh, you're so second to last. I have one younger brother, Tim Pemberton, uh, who <laughs> we always have this competitive thing because Tim's quite high up in the BBC. He's head of religion. Is he your brother? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I sat in the Grand Hall at Lancaster University with a That's certain way. Tim Pemberton from the BBC <laughs> yeah. when I was seeking advice about how to get into the BBC. I did not realise he was your brother. That's my little brother. Oh, wow. And, uh, Small world. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, tight family, very much about supporting each other through whatever in life. They're fiercely proud of me and my achievements, although I don't think I've achieved anything. But... Uh, yeah, I often hear him talking about black voices as though he formed us and, you know, <laughs> he's the manager and stuff like that. Uh, and that's fine. Um, so, yeah, and I think because of um, how we are as a family, um, it, it's a beautiful thing. So I get very distressed when I work with young people who don't have that tightness in terms of family and the love and the support that comes with that. You're not the first person in this series of conversations um, to talk about families almost being sort of split and then siblings being born here and siblings staying behind until mum and dad could afford to bring everybody over. Were you prepared for that? Was, was it something that was always talked about and, and, and the norm or was it a little bit unusual? Uh, so my family are from Nevis and St Kitts. Mm-hmm. So my dad was born in Nevis and my mum was born in St Kitts. I didn't have any recollection of any discussion because I was a baby. (laughs) But I just know from conversations I've heard, they descended (laughs) and broke a lot of things in the house that they weren't used to. 
and uh, it was just absolute fun, them fixing it. And my dad has this thing, if you break it, fix it or replace it. And uh, yeah, so I had a childhood where it's carnage a lot of the time with 10 children, as you can imagine, but absolute fun when we fix things and they weren't quite right, you know. So I wasn't part of the discussion about bringing them here. I just knew that they arrived while I was a, a baby. And I was spoilt by six older siblings who did my hair, fed me, walked me. You know, they became parents, actually. They took me to school. If anything happened in school, they looked out for you in school. So, yeah, I was right down the bottom. So I'm one of the British, three of us born here and seven born in the Caribbean. Oh, how wonderful. It just sounds so gorgeous. And, and what sort of child were you? Were you a, were you a shy child or, or were you forced to be loud amongst... Amongst the 10? It's interesting because outside of home, I'm very shy. I know a lot of people find that hard to believe, but I am. I'm very introvert. I'm all right one-on-one, but when there's a whole group of people, it's like, oh, I'll just stay in the corner somewhere and hide. But at home, I could fight my corner. And I think that um, my brothers were very protective of me and my sisters would always say I was the good-looking one, although I think they are more beautiful. But they would say I was the good-looking one and everybody wanted to play in my hair. Everybody wanted to take me out uh, and not them. Um, So I think uh, when it came to food, I certainly could hold my own. Uh, I'd always find my own little corner to protect my plate so that nobody could steal my meat. And, uh, you know, snooze you lose, it was that kind of... (laughs) Yeah, you don't turn your back while you're at the dinner table because something would be going off your plate. I'm one of four and we're all girls. And I tell you what, each one of us could hold our own food as well. (laughs) Much fun was had. Um, What was life like then growing up in um, Kings Heath for you as a teenager? Because we're talking, what, back in the probably 70s? 70s, yeah. yeah. I loved um, my childhood. I really did. I loved school. I loved all my teachers. I think I was one of those kids that didn't miss a day of school. I always felt I was missing out if I missed something in school. I think in junior school, I started playing the cello. I just looked at all the instruments that were on offer at school that you could have a lesson with, and the cello looked the biggest and most interesting, so I wanted to play that. I'd struggle carrying it home and back to school, because in those days they had those horrible cloth cases that were ripped and all sorts of stuff. But I really enjoyed the cello, and I think that's where I've got the tone for my voice from, uh, from playing cello. And then in secondary school, I was really into languages and athletics. Those were my two passions. And I always thought that I was going to be a bilingual secretary. I wasn't really interested in becoming a musician at all. I just wanted to travel the world and speak lots of languages. Uh, And I think having uh, Latin as a subject... Uh, It's a great basis for a lot of languages. And so German, I thoroughly enjoyed. French, I thoroughly enjoyed. Italian, Spanish, all of those I really enjoyed. And still use them a little bit when Black Voices is on tour today. So, yeah, um, I really enjoyed my childhood. And uh, school was really important to me. I didn't have a lot of friends, but the friends I had were key friends. And I still have them to this day. I was going to ask you, are you still in touch with them? Yeah, and one of my friends still lives around the corner. Yeah. What do you get from that um, continuation of friendship from childhood right through to adulthood and an adulthood which isn't sort of like, you know, the normal blend into the background of life? Yours is right out there. 
So we, we grew up in Kings Heath. Um, my mum and dad came over to the UK in the late 50s. So we were one of the first black families in Kings Heath. And obviously, if you're the first black family, every black family that comes after that, you know them. So we felt like we lived in every black family's house <laughs> that was in Kings Heath. Um, and we all looked out for each other, you know. With 10 children, my mum was incredible. That's all I can say. We came home from school. Our dinner was always on the table. We never went without, as people in black families know, whenever you had to go out, we look good from head to toe. Face shine, knees bright, shining, no, no dry skin inside. And uh, yeah, I think it's something that we all take and pass on to our own children. You know, if you're going out with your children, the first thing you look at is the crusty foot, crusty knees, or, you know, you just make sure that you're looking good before you go down the road. So, yeah. I don't know, just incredible to be like a forerunner in Kings Heath in terms of black families. And so the friend that I have that lives around the corner now, she's quite high up in the health service. And uh, yeah, just been a solid friend for life. And in the pecking order of families, the brothers that are on the same age, age range as my brothers still take, stay in touch and the sisters and then me and Jasin, we went to school together and still stay. Uh, tight friends. We walk as well sometimes uh, in the morning. So. Outside of school then, did you take up music as an extra sort of curricular activity or was it just part and parcel of life at home? Music was always in our house, yeah. At school I did music but it wasn't my real passion. Languages and English to be honest, English Lit and Lang. They used to separate them in those days. Those were my passions. But I did enjoy music, and in my time of growing up, I found music to be much more fulfilling than the music that I hear being made today. So I just thought there was such diversity in the pop charts when I was growing up. Brian Ferry, um, Toya Wilcox, uh, Aswad, you know. We used to go and see Ruby Turner down the Fighting Cocks in Moseley. Before UB40 were UB40, they used to play down the Fighting Cocks as well. Um, you could go and see some really good people all across our city. Steve Gibbons, Fine Young Cannibals were around when I was growing up. But there was such diversity in the charts. Unfortunately, my dad was a reverend and... Uh, Certain kinds of music were not welcome in our home. Whatever do you mean? <laughs> so I do remember um, one Sunday coming home from church and dancing in the mirror to Brian Ferry, limbo up, limbo down. And my dad came in and that, that uh, 45 was smashed and put in the bin. So, yeah, we used to sneak all kinds of music into the house. And unfortunately, they were on 45, you know, where the middles came out. You had to kind of balance them sometimes when you'd lost the middle. So, yeah, I always enjoyed um, stealing time away to listen to music. But in our home, our parents always brought the music that they listened to in the Caribbean. So it was your usual that everybody here, I'm sure, would have Jim Reeves, Johnny Cash, Elvis, you know, crying in the chapel. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't horrible music. It didn't do much for me although I realized in adult life 
that I knew all the words to Jim Reeves' songs. And it was most disconcerting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, there were lots of um, moments at home where we would sing as a family together. My dad could play a few chords on the guitar. And, yeah, so daddy sang bass, mama sang tenor, and me and little whatever would join right in. It was that kind of family. But we thoroughly enjoyed making up music. We'd make up songs about all kinds of stuff. And sometimes we'd say, right, we'll do a reggae version and then we'll take it into a rock version. And we just had absolute fun growing up together. You know, Your I know. family just sounds so cool. I want to rewind back and just go and live in your house. <laughs> but it was, it was absolute fun. And loads of kids used to come. Our house was never empty. We always had people staying. We always had kids whose parents were working and kids would come and stay at our house till their parents came home. So, yeah, it was always fun and games. So when did you become aware of your own vocal talents? Was it back then or was it much later on? I never thought I could sing. I sang in church, obviously. I sang in every choir, children's choir, youth choir, adult choir. I led them. But I never thought I could sing, to be honest. I just, I know I could hold a tune, but I wouldn't be, you know, I wasn't one of the people that would be chosen to sing a solo on a Sunday. So I don't know when I discovered my voice, to be honest. But I do know that when we started Black Voices, there was nobody who could sing low. And I just thought, I'll take that on. I'll hold down the low parts. And then um, I remember we were working with a few people um, around the city because when we started, we thought we had to be posh and go and have training at the conservatoire and stuff. And people would say, oh, I don't think anybody here would be able to hit these notes, so we'll need to transpose. And I'd say, OK, I can sing that. They'd be like, no, you can't. And I'd say, yeah, I can sing that. And, uh, yeah, I discovered that I could sing quite low. And then um, when Celia joined the group uh, much later, I saw her singing somewhere. And I thought, gosh, there's somebody else who sings just as low as me. So, yeah, but I've never considered myself a singer. I love that. That makes me feel so good because I was also alto at school. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. used to sing with the boys. So it was anywhere up there, just screech, still do, still do. Why a cappella over instrument-led music? Okay. Well, I consider the voice to be an instrument. And um, I remember in 1978, uh, I was always in the arts. I'd leave work and I'd be uptown or down at the Mac just somewhere, just wouldn't go home, just want to do something. And then somebody gave us a leaflet and it said, Sweet Honey and the Rock, performing in Liverpool. And I looked at the poster and there were these five black women who I just thought looked gorgeous. And I thought, I've got to get to that. So a few of us took a trip up to Liverpool uh, on, I think it was a Friday evening. And we went to see Sweet Honey. We didn't know what they were doing. We just saw Sweet Honey and they looked good. So we just thought, we'll go. And... Of course, it was a cappella, and we sat um, near the front, and they started singing, and the tears just started flowing for me. So they interwove their performance with their journeys through life, but also the civil rights movement and um, how powerful song in protest is. And uh, I think all of us cried throughout the whole concert. We couldn't believe that five voices could keep you interested for 90 minutes but it sure did and uh i remember the concert finished and we just couldn't stand up we just couldn't get up we were just like what just happened and we came back to birmingham and uh we looked up <laughs> acapella groups 
and realised that it, it wasn't very popular here. And we just thought, you know what, we should start an a cappella group. We were backing singers anyway for a lot of pop bands. We did a lot of studio work in terms of harmonies for pop bands. So we were used to um, forming harmonies. And yeah, Black Voices really grew out of that. So who was we back then in 78? Oh, well, Sandra and I uh, are the two people who have been in Black Voices since the start. And uh, yeah, it's really me and her. Beverly did start in Black Voices, but then she went off to study and then she came back. So, you know, our parents, you've got to get a good education. So No one can ever take that education away from you, can they? <laughs> no. I think that's something that in black and brown families, quite frankly, <laughs> is ingrained in us. It's part of our DNA. Yeah. Did you ever imagine that um, you'd have such an impact when you decided to, to follow in the footsteps of... Um, Sweet Honey in the Rock. Sweet Honey Rock, yeah. Not really, but I used to go to the States quite frequently because um, I just felt that in terms of music programs, there was a lot going on over there that wasn't going on over here. And I wanted to know more about the civil rights movement and how music was used in protest. So I'd put myself in um, the Fisk Jubilee uh, University and sit down and just read their journey, how they worked in Europe and how difficult it was for them. Or I'd go to Dallas as the huge the largest collection of gospel, spirituals, black music really, collection in Dallas. And I'd go and just place myself there for a few weeks and just read up and learn about stuff. And it was out of that really that I thought, you know what, we should form a group here and use our voices to talk about things that affect black women, black people all over the world really. But then we also wanted to keep the pop things that we'd done as well because those were fun. So we just thought, well, why not just have a group that does a diverse collection of stuff, but all through vocals? So that's how Black Voices. And so, you know, you talk about um, being backing singers for pop bands. So obviously it was, I think you've done stuff with UB40. Before they were UB40. Before they were UB40. Yeah, we sang on Steel Pulse tracks. We, we sang on a load of people's tracks. We've opened for lots of people. Winton Marcellus, people who we'd never dreamed that we could open for, Ray Charles, Nina Simone, those type people. And uh, at the time, we didn't even realise how big a deal that was. We were just travelling, having fun and thinking, oh, yeah, we'll get some free food here and yeah, <laughs> get paid for doing it and come back to Birmingham and talk about it. And sometimes you'd be speaking to people and say, oh, yeah, we opened for Ray Charles last week. And they'd be like, Ray Charles! <laughs> We'd be like, yeah, I'm Ray Charles. We didn't see any big deal about it. Now that we're older, we're thinking, why didn't we just write about that a bit more? Why didn't we just shout about it a little bit more? But I'm really glad that we didn't, to be honest, because um, it's just become a part of our journey and it's nice to look back on. We've got some nice photographs with him and Nina Simone. And it's just nice sometimes when we're having a social just to look at those things and think, gosh, little black voices. From Birmingham. Yeah. So, you know, when we were asked to open uh, for um, Algero in an opera house in Germany, we didn't even know who Algero was. And then, like, ten years later, you're here and he's coming to Symphony Hall. You're like, oh, oh, my God, that's that guy that we opened for, you know. So I think that naivety and that ignorance, sad as it was for people who appreciate those people, 
it's just fantastic because years later we could go backstage in Symphony Hall and say to Algero, we opened for you in Germany. He said, yes, I remember. Remember we sat in the hotel bar and we chatted till three o'clock in the morning. We're like, oh yeah. That's just a little bit cool. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's kind of, I'm a bit starstruck now. Knowing that, that time, to what extent has it influenced black voices as you are now or, you know, the evolution of black voices? I think all the people I'm talking about, whether we realised it or not, they influenced our sound. Um, They influenced some of our repertoire choices because they're people we did grow up listening to. Um, My daughter has a trait of her dad, not me. I just like music. It doesn't matter to me who it is. If it's just good, I just like to listen to it. But they are the kind of people that know every word on the sleeve of the CD, you know, where it was recorded, who did the backing vocal. I'm not that interested. (laughs) I either like it or I don't like it. And so my daughter does get irritated because she'll say, when I say, oh, what's that song again? That um, You know, that she says, mom, who sings it? I don't know who sings it. It goes, um, you know, and I can't, but she can tell you the year it's recorded. So she's very good on pop quizzes and all that kind of thing. I don't have that skill. That's not important to me. I either like some music or I don't like it. It either speaks to me or it doesn't speak to me. And one of the things that we try to have in Black Voices is that the music that speaks to us, we like to share that with our audience because we feel that we can put something in it, some emotion in it, or help the message get across if we feel it. So it's very simple what we do. We don't want to complicate the methodology. But we do do complex things, so I don't want you to think that it's just basic stuff that we do. And is that something that you saw through um, the artists that you you were opening up for um, in those early days? Very much so. Nina Simone loved the fact that it didn't matter what was going on around her. She was in her zone. She was telling her story. She was doing what she wanted to do. And Ray Charles, the same, uh, just knew what he was doing. Sometimes I used to say to him, you can see, can't you? You you must be able to see. It was just so, you know. Brilliant. And and he would say, yeah, I see, I see with my hands. (laughs) So, uh, so, But yeah, just some things that he would do. You're just like, gosh, seeing people can't do that. How is he doing that? I think people don't understand the talent that that man has or had. Um, So, yeah. I think it comes out a bit in his film Ray, in the film Ray, um, but phenomenal talent. Uh, same as Stevie Wonder, you know, we met him in Ghana and, jeez, uh, you know, you just, <laughs> sometimes I think we were dribbling. Uh, we were just mouth agog at the musicianship that these people have, but just real people, regular people, not trying to, you know, they don't have an entourage of 50 people walking behind them. They are just there to make good music and talk about how they've come to be able to make that good music. So we learnt a lot from those type people. Winton Marcellus, again, great musician. Just We opened for him at the Barbican in London a couple of times and then we sang with him here at a, one of the projects he did here with singers. And uh, my nephew didn't have a cello at the time and he just sent some money. Quincy Jones, the same, just sent some money. So that to me, those are real people who want to see um, black young people excel when they don't have the means. And yeah, that that's deep. 
for me, not the flowery stuff that we see with feathers and boas and all that kind of stuff, no. Therefore, it feels pretty natural that you also went into teaching and designing courses. Um, is that, tell us a bit about that. I'm, I'm sort of inferring that that's your way of giving back. I talk about opening doors a lot in my yeah. everyday life. You can open a door, but it's about helping push a young person through that door that matters almost more than opening it because you can leave it open and nothing happens. Happens, yeah. Yes and no. Uh, I started doing courses because I was under the training of Isai Barnwell of Sweet Honey in the Rock for many years. Uh, she was my mentor for about 15 years. And so, um, yeah, I, she came here and did many workshops with us. And then I'd go and spend time with her in the States. I also did that with Linda Tillery with the Cultural Heritage Choir. Learned a lot from their journey and stuff. And uh, just learned about how you... One of the things that I always felt a way about here is that you weren't able to teach music unless you had that beamers behind your name. And I always thought that that was wrong because uh, that's not how our music came through. People who were here who came through church, harmonization was a natural thing for us. Rhythm was a natural thing for us. And um, in terms of teaching, um, singing in the oral tradition um, workshops, you want the process to be natural and for people to feel that they don't have to have a trained voice to bring it to a workshop and a lot of the protest songs that uh, our workshops were based around it wasn't about trained singers walking and demonstrating it was about people who had a voice and joining their voice with other people's voices so that became the way or the ethos for most of our workshops I am trained, by the way, just in case people... <laughs> I am a trained musician. But sometimes I think um, technicality gets in the way of passion and just life, real life. Uh, people either connect with things or they don't. Uh, and I'm always trying to find that place within music that people can connect. That's what we try to do in our singing workshops. Um, so, yeah, I learnt a lot sitting at the feet of Isaiah M. Barnwell and uh, Linda Tillery. Uh, but J Bernice Johnson-Reagan too, although Bernice I spent less time with, more Isai. So I feel that I've been grounded in what I'm trying to do. And, uh, yeah, I have something to say. That's how I run my workshops. Where do you see that with young children now? I mean, oh, you know, young people. Like, because... Obviously, we still go to church. People go to church. I'm from a Punjabi background. We did the equivalent in the Gurdwara. Mm. Everyone's taught Punjabi. Well, not everyone, but I was taught Punjabi. Um, and, you know, hymn singing, etc. But translating that then into a career is altogether a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're fortunate that we have a studio complex on the north side of the city. And what I think um, we're doing more of now is enabling young people who don't have the means uh, to follow their dreams, really, just to bring their passion. Um, we try to teach them that to follow your passion and your dream, there's some pain, but you've got to come through that pain and your passion and dreams will be realised. And I think we're, we're winning. Uh, we've got some really good young people who I think will take over our studio within the next five years or so. They have bigger, better ideas than I do. They know where they want to go and they don't want to wait 
she keep, they keep saying to me, Black Voices, you've made it. I'm like, no, we haven't. There's still a long way on the journey to go. And they're like, no, five years, if I haven't made it, I'm giving up. You know, there's that thing in young people, isn't there, of now. They need what they want now. So I think the slog that our generation, you know, are prepared to put in is not in young people. And I think it's an admirable thing, but I also think there's a, a realism, a base of realism that they need to understand. Does that make you worry that perhaps could be the erosion of certain types of musical genres or, 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 or not? Or, or, you know, it's a quick hit and here today, gone tomorrow, done yesterday sort of thing. I'm not worried about it because I think it's just the time we're in. Uh, you know, the technologies that we're working with, everything's very immediate, you know. When I tell people some of the things that I've had to go through, to get to where I'm going, they're just like, you're mad. Who does that? <laughs> you know, and I just think it was in the journeying and the process that I learned a lot of, you know, that's where my experiences were born. So, yeah, I do feel sad that um, I think some of the music that we're listening to, to now, even though some of it's very real and it speaks to the moment, I do wonder what the next message is going to be or, yeah, how much darker stuff is going to become. Well, I was going to say that because, you know, you, you talk about your music and being inspired by the civil rights movement and we've got Black Lives Matter now. A lot of our different music genres like grime speak to experiences of young people in living in their neighbourhoods, on the streets, etc. It is very different. It is very different. I am a bit old-fashioned. I, I listen to lyrics first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I like the melody, but I also need to have, I need to hear a story when I'm listening to music. Do you feel that that still exists or, again, is it just here we are now, it might change again in another five years' time? Oh, I think, uh, I think there'll always be audiences for all kinds of music. Uh, but I think the young people's voices are in a different time. Uh, it's different life situations. Um, lots of the things that are happening now, we weren't dealing with those when we were growing up. So, you know... Um, <laughs> You can go in a classroom to do a little workshop and sometimes you ask people if they've heard of, you know, I think Michael Jackson will be obsolete soon. You know, I was in a school the other day and some kids hadn't heard of Michael Jackson. I'm just like, where have they been? You know, but maybe he's not relevant to their time and situation. So I think that's how I look at it and I don't take offence. If people don't like the music I like, that's fine. Yeah, lots of people I talk to, young people now, Never heard of Brian Ferry. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, because to me, that man wrote some serious stuff. So, yeah, I, I love some grime, if I can understand it, like you. Uh, but a lot of it for me goes over my head because I'm not a street girl, as you know. So we've talked about young people and music now. What about the environment and the city, Birmingham? In your mind, how much has it changed from when you were younger, and I suppose with respect to music and creating music in our city? It's very different. Very, very different. I grew up in a time where you could pop into most pubs Thursday to Sunday and see a good band. Now music's playing. It's just in the background somewhere. Um, a lot of the bands that have made it, in Birmingham you saw in a pub first somewhere I'm a little anti-festivals not 
be 22, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where people save up for the whole year just to go to a festival to hear all their favourite bands. And it's like, what happens the rest of the year? I mean, people say live music is coming back, but I think it'll be a long time before it's where it used to be. Yeah, I don't know. I think Birmingham has produced some of the best musicians, but we lose them because there's not a lot going on for them here. So a lot of people that I grew up making music with went off to London or went to the States or went to Africa or went to the Caribbean. I love Afrobeat. I don't know if you guys are into any Afrobeat, but it doesn't matter where you are. If anybody's, any band is on playing Afrobeat. So when that pub in um, Perry Bar burnt down, I was so upset because I used to go there the odd Friday night and you could just listen to all kinds of Afrobeat. And there's just something about that music that takes over your body. You can't sit still, you know, it's just, I don't know. There's not much music being made in our city nowadays that does that for you, that, you know, you feel, gosh, I've got to have some of that or I need to go and see what's happening or explore that. I don't have the same buzz that in my teens to my early 30s in Birmingham. Yeah, you could go anywhere in the city and see a good band. We used to go up the junction. I mean, I think... um, the pub in King's Heath. Quite Hair and Hands. Hair and Hands still has a good music, uh, live music circuit. But a lot of the others just aren't there anymore. So on that then, what's your favourite place in Brum to gig? To gig? Well, oh. perform. <laughs> I think everywhere's different. It depends what you're doing. Uh, I'm as happy on Symphony Hall stage as I am at somewhere like Hair and Hands. Uh, and we try to adapt our music to different venues and environments, audiences. I just love performing. So I just think, yeah, good artists know how to adapt. How has your life benefited because of your music? Is it financial? Is it meeting people? Is it something deeper and spiritual? It's certainly not financial, but uh, just the people we've been able to meet uh, through being in Black Voices, the music that we create is very deeply spiritual for me. I think most people come to see Black Voices because they feel that there'll be some inspiration or some challenge or some some light <laughs> that will bring uh, to their lives. And I think if I ever lose that, that's when Black Voices needs to stop. Don't ever lose it. <laughs> um, how, how do you think then Birmingham or, or Brummies... And our diversity and heritage has influenced life and music culture generally across the UK. I think it's in, uh, influenced the world, to be honest. Just Bangra. We, we, we did a Bangra CD. Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hanji ho. Hanji ho. I did not know that. I'm going to, is, oh, yeah. I, I'm going to go and seek it out. <laughs> Please don't. Um, <laughs> I just think that. I think people are waking up to the fact that diversity enriches, you know, communities. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy them. It really does enrich. Just food in this city, how, you know, it's changed all our palates here. Yeah, good curry, uh, whatever. Caribbean cuisine, the Irish community, the Eastern European community. Uh, we're doing a project with some Ukrainians right now and some Syrian people and just learning about how they construct music is 
great for me. I'm learning a lot uh, from the process. And there, it's interesting when people want to do something, when they say something like, we want to do our folk song in a reggae style. Okay, okay. (laughs) So I have to sit down and have a little workout session with that one first. But I just think it's, it, it's great that people are open to try that kind of thing. But it's just rich. Music in Birmingham is rich because there's so many influences, so many different communities here that want to make their mark in terms of what they're doing culturally in our city. And I think music in this city is rich because we have wonderful musicians like yourself to enrich it in the first place. So, Carol, thank you so, so much for sharing with us so openly. Hey, it's been great to sit down with you for, you know, 45, 50 minutes instead of about two minutes on TV, which is all I've ever had the pleasure of doing with Carol. So thank you. Um, you. Keep shining. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>